The Fourteenth Amendment, Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Section 2. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of social contract and the monopoly of force. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 16, and today we're taking a break from our routine coverage because there's nothing routine about the world that we are living in. In order to discuss what we are broaching today, first we need to bring up two very important Supreme Court cases. The first of which being DeShaney versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services. In this case, there was a young boy who was being abused. He was abused repeatedly and fell into a coma and died. The state was then sued because the social service worker had marked on the pattern of abuse many, many times, and it was decided by the court that the state had no responsibility to help this child. In the court opinion for the majority, it was written... The affirmative duty to protect arises not from the state's knowledge of the individual's predicament or from its expressions of intent to help him, but from the limitation which it has imposed on his freedom to act on his own behalf. It is the state's affirmative act of restraining the individual's freedom to act on their own behalf through incarceration, institutionalization, or other similar restraint of personal liberty, which is the deprivation of liberty, triggering the protections of the Due Process Clause, not its failure to act to protect his liberty interests against harm inflicted by other means. What that is saying is... Even if they promise to help, they, the state does not have a requirement to help. That promise to help doesn't mean anything. It doesn't trigger any sort of, of cause to act. The only thing that triggers that cause to act is the deprivation of liberty through 
imprisonment or institutionalization or similar restraint. This changes what we understand the duty of police to be. They don't have a responsibility to act. And we've seen that. We've seen it where, you know, shootings are happening at schools and and people who are charged to protect those schools turn and leave. And they're not held responsible for it. The second case is Town of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. In this particular case, there was a mother of three who had a restraining order on her husband. Her children were kidnapped by the husband, and she called the police and asked them to act on the restraining order and save her children. They decided to not do so, and so the husband killed the three children, entered a police station, opened fire on the police, and was killed. Gonzalez then attempted to sue the town of Castle Rock, and the Supreme Court decided that the responsibility of the police officers, despite there being a restraining order, was not to protect these people under protection. The majority opinion written by Antonin Scalia reversed the Tenth Circuit's ruling that they were responsible and reinstated the district court's order of the dismissal of the case. The court's majority opinion held that enforcement of the restraining order was not mandatory under Colorado law. Were a mandate for enforcement to exist, it would not create an individual right to enforcement that would be considered a protected entitlement under the precedent of Board of Regents of State Colleges versus Roth. And even if there were a protective individual entitlement to enforcement of a restraining order, such entitlement would have no monetary value and hence would not count as property for the due process clause. It's, it's saying that these agreements are not worth money and because they're not worth money, there's no requirement to uphold them. Yes, because the property concern of protection is not valuable. That is to say, the protection of the police has no inherent value. In addition, the court also affirmed that the three individual officers had qualified immunity and as such could not be sued. To define qualified immunity, according to Cornell Law School, qualified immunity balances two important interests— the need to hold public officials accountable when they exercise power irresponsibly, and the need to shield officials from harassment, distraction, and liability when they perform their duties reasonably. Now, it would be very easy for me to approach this conversation from a very personal standpoint. My family has been the victim of the extrajudicial killings by the police. It would be easy to approach this topic from a reactionary standpoint to the issues that are going on in the world today 
And that is not where we are going to analyze this issue from. What we are going to do is we are going to call for the end of qualified immunity, uh, like they have done in Colorado, and hopefully they will do in many more states. Instead, we are going to build a case for prison abolition and police abolition based on the cogent concept that the police have no obligation to provide protections for their citizens, and it is in fact harming the citizens in order to continue the operations of the police and the prison industrial complex. The 13th Amendment, which was ratified in 1865, Section 1 reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, what the 13th Amendment has been used for is to create and keep a slave class in America. Essentially, prisoners are used to labor under far below anything like a minimum standard wage and are kept in slave labor, including in plantations in Louisiana and such. In essence, slavery has not been abolished. Slavery has just changed its form. And that moral imperative to have all of our citizens free is being subverted by the prison system, which makes millions of dollars, including the police system, which over-polices black communities and sets up a situation where black people are enslaved by the system at disproportionate rates to the population of the United States. We read from the 14th Amendment at the, at the top of this episode, which was ratified in 1868. And in Section 2, what I just want to touch on is this felony disenfranchisement aspect of it. This has been used time and again to strip people of their ability to vote, sometimes permanently, sometimes causing people to have to jump through absurd hoops where it really is just based on the whim of the people on the board that they face and nothing more than their their whim. And if that's the kind of system we're going to build, what is the motivation? If if you're going to be stripped of your your rights as a citizen and your ability to lead a life after you get out and to lead a healthy life, what is what is the purpose of trying to to get your life together after you get out of prison? And on the same self-same side of this, once again, the over policing of black communities sets up a situation where felony disenfranchisement 
is used to disproportionately strip the voting rights of the black populace, thus making the black community have a weaker presence in the voting. This is a systematic reduction in the voice of a specific group in America. To be clear, this is a thing that certainly disproportionately affects you know, all minority groups with the black community being the most heavily affected, followed closely by the native community. In addition to over-policing, stripping the labor value out of the community and literally enslaving it, in addition to that process, stripping out the labor value, also reducing that community's capacity to vote. In addition, the police have used asset forfeiture to strip literal capital out of the community. According to the FBI, asset forfeiture is a powerful tool used by law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, against criminals and criminal organizations to deprive them of their ill-gotten gains through seizures of these assets. It is where they, the FBI or the police, accuse you of a thing, take your possession as evidence of said criminal activity, and don't have any requirement to give it back oftentimes. They don't have to bring charges. They don't have to take you to court to prove why they get to keep it. They can just take your stuff and keep it. So we are creating a situation where the police, who have no responsibility to protect you, can arrest you to take your labor value, to maintain a slave class, take your possessions to fund their operations, and then leave you disenfranchised from the ability to vote in such a way that you could protect yourself in the future. Now, it has been years of struggle at this point. And it is worth noting that eight years ago, Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. And since then, we have held protests every summer. And six years ago, we watched Eric Gardner killed by the police on camera just like we saw George Floyd killed by the police on camera, telling the officers that he could not breathe. It has been six years of us marching against this injustice, and not enough has changed to the point where it is not the black community's responsibility for developing that meaningful change. This is a conversation that white people need to have amongst ourselves. 
we need to take responsibility for educating ourselves to really understand this history. Just, I'll use me as an example, I have always thought I was pretty aware of what was going on. I decided that I wanted to take this moment to really dig into the details of what's going on and the history of what's going on to really understand from people who have written about this from the civil rights era all the way till now. And even with believing that I knew before, it has been very challenging and overwhelmingly educational to the point that there are multiple times in this that I've just been rendered speechless or rendered incapable of cogent thought in my rage at the things that I've learned. Again, like thinking that I'd pretty much understood. And it's not that it's not that I had the broad strokes wrong. It's that learning the details of why those broad strokes exist is is overwhelming if you haven't exposed yourself to that. I mean, Everett will testify to the overload that I've experienced going into this, even with thinking I knew what was up. I mean, the devil is in the details when it comes to something like this. The bigotry and systematic repression of racial minorities in America is very broad while at the same time being perniciously specific. The difficulty that we all face is in learning and continue learning, we must strive to be personally anti-racist. And that requires admitting in many cases that perhaps we do not understand as clearly as we think we do exactly what the issues are. There are a lot of resources out there for this, and ask your black friend to help yourself get woke is not that resource. Um, I we are we have a list. Hold on. We have a list that uh, very educated people have put together to help work through this. And I'm going to cite some of that stuff now and, and some additional things that I found. And we're going to compile a list of our own to help work your way through this. Uh, there's a, uh, an essay, white privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack by Peggy McIntosh, which can help you begin to understand what exactly is meant by white privilege and how does it affect you both actively and passively. Uh, adjacent to that was the Comahy River Collective Statement, which was a all-woman, black, lesbian collective who set out to discuss the intersectional ways that different forms of bigotry impact them in their collective action. 
There's I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown and how she discusses, uh, among other things, the tremendous toll that it takes frequently being brought in as the black person who understands white people to try to explain this to them. And it really helps illuminate why this labor, why this work, why this effort has to be put in by us, by white people. It's it's our responsibility, and it, it goes a long way to helping personalize why that is. There is Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum, Ph.D., which delves into how black children begin to develop identity of culture and race and what it means to exist in America as a black person. It then delves into how white people don't have to go through that struggle inherently because we are viewed as the normal, we are viewed as the average, we are viewed as the default. And so a lot of that work does not get done by white people. And that hit me hard. I had not thought about it that way, but it's extremely illuminating. There is the the Ballad or the Bullet speech by Malcolm X, which shows you the urgency and the frustration of this struggle dating back decades. This is a thing, like I said, we're going to include a lot of resources below. It'll include books, podcasts, videos, and and we encourage you to dig through this stuff and really try to look introspectively to personalize this struggle, to go from understanding that racism is not just bigotry, it's not just the the KKK member or the neo-Nazi or the neo-Confederate. It is the system and it is the way that we as white people have normalized our position even though we don't think we are bigoted even when you think you're doing it right you can still be doing it wrong and causing harm the last thing i want to say on that is as you're reading dig deeper and chase the rabbit hole half the stuff i've found and dug into is not been on lists that I found, which I have tried to read through completely. It's been things that get referenced in those works. It's been following people online who, different people of different cultures, different communities, different experiences, listening to them and trying to see and personalize where they're coming from. It You only have time. You have your whole life to do this, but you have to start now. The urgency is now, and if you don't act now, if you don't at least begin, then you'll never get there. But this is all largely a tangent to the topic that we are going to be discussing. What is presently at hand is the use of force by the police 
in the protests that we have been seeing for now more than 20 days in a row, the deep, unfortunate irony of the use of chemical warfare during a global pandemic and the fact that it is essentially a war crime, the things that the police have been doing, including assaults on medics or the use of helicopters to disperse crowds, has shown us that the police are inherently violent in a way that our communities cannot sustain or support. Not only are they violent in ways that our communities can't sustain or or support, they're not answerable for this. And that has to end. When you're in a democracy, the people with the power have to answer to the community. Or there is no democracy. So now we come to the crux of the issue. It's the nature of the social contract versus progressive social justice. In essence, the police can only exist because of the consent of the people. And if we revoke that, the police will no longer have a monopoly on violence if they are just as vulnerable to due process through the rejection of qualified immunity or if they are completely abolished the government cannot lose its monopoly on violence the monopoly on the use of force Because in many ways, violence is used to maintain the unenforceable contracts of our nation. The tacit consent of the government is such that we do not believe that an individual has the right to commit violence on another person and that the state must be allowed to use violence to deter that personal violence from being used against you. What that means is that we must have a mechanism by which violence can be used by the state to enforce those unenforced contracts. And if the prison system is to be abolished, we need a system by which justice can be served. If incarceration is not the answer, there must be an answer because our government, as it exists presently, cannot function without due process and justice being served. The goal here is not to make it to where anarchy reigns supreme. And it's not to make it 
to where people who have been violated by other people don't get justice. That's not what this is about. This is about making sure that justice happens all the way around. Taking a a larger, more holistic view so that justice can be served to everyone. There is a model that already exists inside of our cultural consciousness of how force can be used, and it is compassionately. If there is an aspirational figure that uses force to protect people, that aspirational figure is that of the superhero, specifically the ones cast in the vein of Superman and Spider-Man. It is the idea that, yes, force must be used against bad actors who would use force to inflict their will upon the people unilaterally. However, the thing that we can note about these heroes is they do not kill and they approach every situation of force with compassion and the responsibility to save everyone involved. A fantastic example of Spider-Man seeking to save everyone comes when in Dan Slott's run, uh, Spider-Man finds himself fighting the Rhino at a North Korean military base. And as the Rhino is getting ready to trample over a North Korean soldier, Spider-Man webs up the soldier and yanks him out of the way so that he is not uh, crushed by the Rhino. Later on, as the base is falling, he does a check to make sure everyone got out. This is something Slot got criticized for by some people. They were saying, oh, it's, it's North Korea, it's their military, they're bad, they're horrible, they're evil, and all those things are true. But it is also true that when you wield the use of force, you have to do so compassionately. You have to do so with the understanding that the other person, that that the recipient of that violence is another human being and utilize it to the minimum extent possible so that other justices can be sought. Now, we are not suggesting that there could be a organization made up of people that can match the moral certainty of Superman as from the pen of a writer. But any organization given the monopoly of force in America is given such an asymmetrical capacity to project force upon the populace that it must be coupled with that same kind of moral fortitude and obligation and responsibility to protect the people with it. And that means everyone. There is no reason why our 
force-bearing organizations should need to kill American citizens when they themselves are composed of American citizens. And when it comes to justice, instead of the punitive model of justice, we need to look into a restorative model of justice. And from our own coverage just recently, we have an example of Asgardian restorative justice where Thor, maddened into a berserk rage, must go on a quest to protect the realm against the external threat of Galactus as a way of restoring and giving back to his community in a meaningful fashion. It's it's an act of penance where he has to come to terms with the fact that he did in fact violate Asgardian law, be willing to subject himself to the finding of that law, and then is sent to serve the greater community as a whole as a means of penance and restoration for that violation. Including an indeterminate length of exile. We are not necessarily suggesting that you should necessarily keep offenders in their communities if the restorative justice demands that they not be kept in the community as well. Obviously, every situation of justice must meet the injustice wrought, but there is no need to be punitive about it. Instead, we must seek to restore to those harmed as much as has been taken away. Before we close out today, and if you've hung with us this far, I just want to take a moment and point out that if you are white, it is important to recognize in this conversation that your voice is not the priority. We have to be listening to the people who have been damaged by this system the most. I think the most important thing is to recognize that the largest privilege that white people have is the privilege to get overwhelmed and to get bored and to get tired and to give up, to tune out and to say, I'm tired of this fight. I'm tired of the struggle. I want to go back to my boring life. That's the privilege white people have. And if we are to achieve justice, real, restorative, equal justice in this country, we must reject that privilege. We must take the understanding that this fight, that this struggle, is our struggle. It is a challenge that we must also contend with if we are to bring it to a just conclusion. 
we will close today with an excerpt from the letter from Birmingham jail. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham, but I am sorry that your statement did not express similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I'm sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at the effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time, but I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community no other alternative.